Welcome to our first New Models podcast. This will be a bit of a warm-up with what will be a semi-regular cast. We sat down to share some thoughts about the current media ecology and media economy and where our new site, New Models, fits into the picture. I'm director, music producer, writer, and New Models media director, Lil Internet. I'm joined by Dan Keller and Masha Chan, both artists, and New Models co-founder, writer, former editor at Artform, and former editor-in-chief of Texas or Kunst, Caroline Busta. Hope you enjoy. So one of the the main features of new models is that it's um it's sort of an ultimate editor. It's an aggregator, right? And so it comes from this problem where we have too many choices, and we know that uh, having too many choices doesn't make you happier. It makes you like exhausted. We're starting the site new models because <laughs> there's no uh, because the internet moved on. Basically, yeah. like we started new models because there was something lost. Ultimately, by a switch to the feed. Yeah, and this goes both for the user experience, but also for the publisher-editor experience. And, I mean, having worked for two print magazines, or Print Forward, Digital Second, it was incredibly frustrating to produce a lot of really good content and then be reliant on outlets like Facebook or Twitter to get the word out and be reliant on people sharing via those platforms, platforms that ideologically the articles in these magazines were often conceptually opposed to or politically opposed to. That and also there was just a lot of redundancy across platforms. I mean, you have a situation where you have a lot of small uh, uh, editorial outlets that don't have massive budgets, that are all competing for the same pool of writers to cover the same several shows. And they're paying them 70 bucks to cover it. And paying them 70 bucks, <laughs> you know, like literally. Literally, like, literally. We've entered that phase, like post scarcity of media or something, where now there's like too much and there's too many choices. Having to make choices is like a labor. Yeah, like, this is like a like Steve Jobs ate the same thing for breakfast every day because he tried to reduce the number of decisions he had to make in a day. Yeah, which is it's, right, it's like logic. spoons though. Oh, it's very spoony. It's true. <laughs> Only a certain number of decisions you can make per day before you yeah feel which, hopeless or helpless. Wouldn't you consider finding something interesting to read or, or finding something to listen to? Like it's like at this point, it feels like labor. Yes, it is labor. I mean, Twitter is supposed to remove some of that labor. You know, I was speaking to a friend who was like, why do I need aggregation? Twitter does it for me. I just follow the best people. I just follow, like, the best, like, 30 people, and that's it. I have, like, the best selection ever. The platforms are gamified to make you want to follow a lot more of people. and get a lot yeah. more followers. Like, right. nobody uses it that way. Part of it was that I couldn't believe how much time I was wasting every day uh looking for cool shit and then the other part of it was that i would feel dirty like after i like couldn't find cool shit and just read like whatever bait baby yes, stuff me. it's literally like ma- like master clickbaiting yeah like, it, does, it does it feels <laughs> it feels dirty like you feel dirty after like you just did something bad something happened that blogs disappeared yeah. right people started putting their energy into social media um like Web 2.0 social media as opposed to primary, I think, because they had better feedback on it. It was like... Because it was gamified and you got got those likes, got those claps. Precisely. I mean, is is that really all... What's sad, though, is it really all it took is like this kind of social gamification to make blogs, like people just abandon blogging? And magazines. I mean, at the same time, you have all this good paid content coming through magazines that just ends in like a pile of print somewhere because there's no incentive to access information via that route i wonder if we should like start some campaign that's kind of like equates reading like bullshit to like mass like a, like an anti-masturbation campaign but no fab about, about, <laughs> yeah, no like quick. a no fab of <laughs> shitty uh, content like, I think that's, like, that's like important actually like we need that master clip baiting i think you need the shitty content to appreciate the good content a little bit uh, 
I don't know. Well, no, it's true because, I mean, again, it's like I also don't, you know, so Eflux tries to solve that problem. Eflux tries to give you, like, only premium content and only premium advertisers. There's, like, clickbait-free experiences, the Eflux experience. But everything you read in that context is super sanitized. And you lose, like, the dimension of the world. It's like you lose any sense of um, individuality. Um, it feels super homogenized and everything exists in the same playing field. So you do, I think, need some of the clickbait. I just think it's like a sp- another spoony thing where it's like Eflux is exhausting. If you're going to read read one of them, it's a little bit of labor. And you read the whole magazine in one sitting, it's like it's just not actually ergonomic or designed for that. <laughs> like, it's not mentally ergonomic. No, no, definitely not. I just feel like yeah, you just have a certain number of times your, your mind can be blown per day or something. <laughs> how many hot takes you can read. That's true. I wonder if Steve Jobs only used sporks. <laughs> I don't I can't chopsticks would work, right? Not for Sp- soup. No. Maybe I wonder if you guys wanted to say a few words about alternate formats. So if we have Eflux on one side as a kind of format, what are some of the other formats that you think do this more efficiently? I do use Twitter. I mean I do like that feed. I don't have a tightly curated feed, but it still seems to it seems to deliver more than any other uh stream that I have for sure. Well, I think also the rate it skews a bit older. It's also not so image heavy, so it's less like kind of personal amplification. I think that's why Twitter is better. It definitely like souped up the algorithm. There's a lot more. It's not chronological anymore. Like I don't think there's any chronological feeds anymore. I'm sure they could have like an LO that's just like Instagram, but a chronological feed. That would definitely be enough of a niche now for social media to. LO still exists. LO technically, I think, still exists. I'm not allowed to go on there, so... <laughs> Are you still banned? I'm still banned from LO, I think, as far as I know. So. No no platform. I was no yeah. platform. I was one of the... I was the first platform that I was no platform from. <laughs> I've never gotten... Where's the many? Zero violations, though, on any of the major stacks, I think. Other, no, actually, because I I think I made a, uh, a snide remark about Marina Abramovich's performance where I said, just kill yourself already, and then they... I got... Uh, it was the Twitter's... Uh, terms of use for encouraging violence or self-harm is like pretty sure her performance where she's like self-harming herself or freeze writing about that performance is <laughs> promoting self-harm more than yes. me joking about it i'm sure jack goes to her like children's sacrifice oh right exactly with podesta it's definitely because of pizzagate for sure yeah. was jack involved in pizzagate and we might as well start that rumor here <laughs> i don't know that he wasn't do you yeah. know that? I don't. Yeah, it's good enough. Proof, yeah. I mean, I mean, part of the problems with the feed is that, that you know, really, like especially on Facebook, the metrics we have are purely uh, emotional, right? Like your only way you can respond. I mean, you can respond in a comment, but I don't think the algorithm can really parse like the content of your comments in relation to what it shows you. I, I don't think, and, and really, you're just like like, love, laugh, or angry. Oftentimes, your reaction is not. It's complex. Yeah, it's yeah. not just like an emotional reaction. I just feel like now, now the like is the is like the universal default. Just it just react. It doesn't mean anything. It doesn't have same, any. Yeah, same. Like that's I saw the closest. This. I mean, you can't even reset your own algorithm, though, right? Shit, like I've been on Facebook now for what ten years or something, like longer. Thirteen, right? Yeah, it's like why, why not? Like why? Right. Yeah, like it, it would be nice. I mean, your tastes have obviously changed over ten years. Like, it, if the algorithm's reading that far back, but I think generally people feel like the feed sucks, and yes, I feel like the, the feed, feed does suck, and I also feel suck. like everything is based on distraction. And since it's linear, you know, you're scrolling down from through distraction to distraction to distraction, and that's like an absolutely horrible way to consume media when everything is kind of baiting for your next few minutes. And also, it's limitless. One thing I appreciate with like a site like Drudge, say, um, is that it, there's a finite number of things that are on that site. There's a finite amount. And then that's it. You can't keep strolling. And with Facebook, you can actually just keep strolling for like forever. I mean, well, yeah, we're, we're talking about Drudge right now because it was kind of the inspiration for new models in terms of the layout for it. And Drudge's code is 20 years old. It hasn't changed since, I think, like 19, yeah, 1997. 
Yeah, yeah, which is totally insane. I mean, for a site that gets a billion visits a, a month, it's pretty incredible that it's like the codes is still there. So obviously something works about it. And I, I personally think, I mean, part of it, of course, is the aggregation. I mean, he's a brilliant aggregator. Uh, and the, But the second part, too, is it's like a menu. It's like a map. You know, it's not this linear feed where people are putting like sequential singular things in front of your face, each one trying to vie for your attention. It's more like reading a menu or looking at a map where you kind of can quickly scan and take in multiple choices at once, which I think is, uh, yeah, much, much better. Yeah, but there is some hierarchy to it. So it's like upper left, there's like the most pressing issues or news stories all the way down to the bottom right, which is maybe the most trivial in his order. But you can see them all in one glance. I always feel sort of like you have tunnel vision when you're on the feed and you can't really hear, I mean, this term that you've used all the time, siloing. I mean, I feel like that's what Drudge helps us get out of, a siloed environment where we have a hyper-personalized feed and hyper-personalized reality. Every single person who comes to the Drudge page sees the exact same thing. Unlike every person who goes to Facebook, book absolutely see something different um so i think that's a really useful model and even twitter doesn't get around that i mean twitter you still see a personalized it's still what is on your feed as opposed to what you're sharing i do like the curation of like a small group once you get to a certain group size it's like attention kind of does i don't know it's like a mob mob rule and just seeing what happened with the internet in general like i don't really believe in the masses making right decisions anymore like i think we kind of need experts uh again and like this like utopian dream of the internet and the the democratization of everything is kind of like uh kind of did not turn out so i always like to remember that one what was it like 2006 and the person of the year was you it was oh, like the God, Time magazine. Yeah. It's like a mirror, like a reflective. <laughs> yeah, <surface>. right, exactly. <laughs> and that is like, yeah, we've really, it was like, it's pretty good that that was like 2006. And then like just 10 years later, that was just like, yep, <laughs> that's what happens. <laughs> I mean, I also think a person, there's just like a, a wider and like almost limitless range of associative thinking that can happen. Whereas an algorithm, right, your own feed, which is curated directly to you, it's kind of like, like, oh, you like this thing, so here's more of this thing, which is actually really dumb. Right. It's like if you went to a restaurant and you're like, well, you love the pasta marinara last time, so here's another pasta marinara. And you're like, but I just ate that yesterday. Right. Or there's no, you will never discover anything like really new because right. it keeps serving you pasta marinara. Yeah. That's horrible. Yeah, it's true. New Models is currently entirely self-funded and self-produced, but if you'd like to help bring an episode to life, we are currently accepting sponsors, underwriters, and advertisers. Please reach out to the New Models ad department at anad, A-N-A-D, at newmodels.io. Again, that's A-N-A-D at newmodels.io. Right before we took a break, we were uh, we were talking about how the chans and Reddit um, were like, if there's a feed, these feeds seem to bring something to the equation that the Facebook feed and other traditional social media feeds uh, don't. And um, one thing I wanted, one another distinction between those two spaces would say like the Eflux feed or even the Facebook feed, any kind of Silicon Valley startup um, want to do good in the world type operation, a feed in that space versus a feed on Reddit or a feed on 4chan are aesthetics. And in the former, you have this very clean, controlled, no dark alleyways. Everything is bright in a CAD-designed, perfect, Parkham Gleistrike type space. And then in the 4chan Reddit space, you have like a lot more, uh, a lot more space. Things almost seem broken, but in a way that feels like generative or feels like all right. Like, and we know that the memes that were so popular um, in the past couple of years and that took such gross popular hold um, often were packaged in something that looked absolutely, like, alien to an Eflux-type space. I mean, Facebook is really restrictive. Like, if you compare it to MySpace... Right. You you could, like, break your MySpace, basically. Right. You could put, like, like 10,000 pixel-wide GIFs yeah. on it, and 
it was awesome for that reason. Like, you just had some flexibility. I mean, right, it's like, what is it? There's some conference on... Uh, I forget it was, was maybe a conference on AI or something, but it's like, you know, if you control the menu, you control everything you know in the art in terms of the art world though i just think it's like you know you, you still they still they need funding right they still want to look clean and so well then maybe the flip side of that question then is why then have low aesthetics been so powerful in driving content and ideas the past couple of years i mean are the low aesthetics intentional though i think initially not but now to some extent, yes. There's certainly no effort going into making them look, quote, quote, good or like proper or like there's something, there's some, is it like a veracity factor, like a realness factor? Is that it? Or? I mean, I know for one, I know one thing though, like, you know, I think a lot of, uh, I mean, you know, a lot of, a lot of hacker types and stuff are really more concerned with functionality. Uh, when it comes down to it, it's really about, and I mean, you know, the chans are all about functionality, like zero aesthetic for sure. Yeah. yeah. What is the color scheme of four chan? Pale pink. Pale, like pale, yeah. pale green, yellow, like, like beige, peachy, like a skin color. Like Nobody skin. knows the real. No, I feel like a, DeviantArt maybe has the same. Oh yeah, wait, pulling that up. Too. The color of 4chan is like it's like the name of God or something. You can't really speak what it is. <laughs> it's it's like, oh, in its code is the name of God. I mean, 4chan of course is probably like the greatest like media social experiment ever and one of the most powerful platforms as well in terms of the effects on the real world. I mean, it's every couple of years it kind of like trumps itself <laughs> it's like in in the size and, and scale of what of the troll it pulls off but interestingly too 4chan is kind of kind of the conceptual end of an attention-based feed your post disappears within a, like 10 seconds if nobody replies and i think that's also why the culture of you know the b-board ended up being so crazy because the things that get the most attention are obviously like gore, porn, racism, the worst things you can think of. Only something like that'll really push people's buttons or get a strong emotional response would work on 4chan and that. That's why now we have this really like conspiratorial, anti-Semitic and far-right politics coming out of it. And I wonder if this is you know, basically the resurgence of a extreme right is sort of a, a politics of attention and it's partly tied to the platforms people are using being based on uh, attention-based algorithms. You got to remember 4chan is like the ra- the most, the biggest instant focus group you could ever imagine. Like you have, you know, like what, 100,000 users at any given time on the site. Obviously it's not that many on, on, each, at, on a single board at a time, but still you're looking at thousands of people seeing an image and then basically at that moment deciding if that image is worth you know responding to or you know upvoting so to speak right the cybernetic factor you're right right and then so in that regard it's really like this kind of subconscious response and intuition to every single thing that's it's putting on i mean the the the, there's certainly some sophisticated people but generally the sophistication or or i guess like this uh this kind of feeling that they're, they they know what's mimetic and what works, that's a product of the hive mind, not of individual. I think maybe another factor is the fact that, well, that even we're sitting here in this Hinterhof storage room, um, able to make a podcast of pretty good quality, is the fact that anybody can make something look good and professional anymore. So that's no longer a believable cue for uh, like value or professionalism. And since that doesn't matter, then, you know, why, why pretend? Why expend energy or resources on pretending? Yeah, that I absolutely, I definitely agree with that. It's almost like the nicer something looks, the less believable. I mean, that's a reaction against mainstream media, too. Maybe it feels like a secret still, too. Yeah, that's true. I think that's a good good analysis, actually. It's like going to a mom and pop place instead of McDonald's, Mm. even if it's huge. And it feels like it comes from somebody you know. Even if it doesn't, it feels like it does. Feels like you know a secret, and secrets are like rare these days. Are they? I yeah, mean, I, I think so. 
Yeah, I don't know. Because every, everything's you're supposed to share everything now, and you want to share, incentivized to share. Because if you share something cool, then you get the currency. I think there are two forces. Like I think you definitely have that as a driving force, but I think counteracting that, you have like these, you know, these micro spaces in the web that are starting to accumulate where secrets are kept and held. Or just like Telegram is like disappearing messages. In yeah. general, these kind of privacy platforms have grown so much, and like Telegram is, I think, one of the most like dominant ways that these crypto companies communicate to their whatever clientele or investors, or right, which is like inherently it's secretive, which I think is some I don't know. There's so many something. paid groups. Yeah. Also, and I mean, I haven't, I haven't yeah. really explored the Telegram world, although chat still seems like another feed to me because it is a chat room, right? telegram yeah. yeah basically yeah i mean the, for instance like i, I <sighs> blog house like in the in the blog house days though like you would find a blog and it was well curated and like there was you know re- good taste and like there was kind of secret songs that you couldn't find anywhere else but it was one place that you could go and actually you wouldn't want to share the blog because mm, then you, you could have secret up. access yeah. to things that other people don't have that were of value and i i can't remember the last time i actually like found a site that was like oh i've just found a site that aggregates like media of value in like a well in a curated way in a place that like is giving me an advantage from knowing about it that I don't even want to share with other people. There's no single node of like good music that I can like yeah. trust. Yeah, like go to, to have and an identity. To it, it takes it. too like, long to dig through everything. Ago, yeah, sure. it's like and and also there's no single node of like you know aggregated news that i go to well drudge <laughs> yeah go to drudgement is right wing yeah, and yeah. it's still so refreshing to have that model that i still go to a fucking conservative news sure. site yeah like which is crazy to me which is again why we started new models yeah it's just like almost like the feed engulfed every other model and like just banished it to the memory hole and and it really homogenized it. I mean, the other thing, uh, like, the other difference is looking at Facebook is embarrassing. Like, if I were in a public space looking at Facebook, <laughs> like, it's unsexy. Like, dumb clickbait comes up for whatever my demographic is. And it's like, it reflects a version of myself that I don't recognize myself I don't know. in it. The version of yourself that you don't know. I guess so. And then, and it also, like, the the things that it chooses to put up. I mean, of course you have to like your mom's stuff and your mom's friend's stuff, but that then makes you think that you like, like, quilts or, I don't know, like... Oh, my like, God, you yeah. know, or, or some church group thing that, you know, is part of... It. It's just, you know, it's not really you. It's something you feel you have to like it because you have to show you saw it because they're, when you call them on Sunday, they're like, did you see the thing I posted to my garden club? And you have to, I don't know, like... So I feel like Facebook doesn't make you feel cool. But what used to be when you would pick up like a magazine of purple or a magazine of specs or like interview or whatever, you could have it at a cafe or in public and you felt cool (laughs) holding it. Like even if the articles inside were kind of shit, there was a certain identification with it. But on a basic level, Facebook's advertising method is flawed. It's not selling you uh, like a version of yourself that um, you want – others that you want to communicate to other people it's embarrassing it's it's like a gross reflection of yourself i wonder how does it dan how does it in russia how does that transfer do you think to the art space where um i mean it's in a way an old debate but like you know something looking like quality or not quality or like what standards are for that i mean we're already having a crisis of the object when object art objects are in screen space um but like are there any thoughts about how that I just feel like we've, yeah, I feel like we've just like fully regressed into like what's certainly in the authenticity is coming from it not looking slick. And like, I think there's just a total pendulum swing away from the post internet aesthetic where it is like all about, you know, the, the dirt style basically aesthetic. And I think that's the only thing that looks authentic. Daniel Keller, can you, in just a few words, <laughs> can you characterize what the post net aesthetic is for our listeners? Yeah. So I think, you could you so yeah the screen space is sort of where it's intended as its destination so you end up having a lot of extremely graphic extremely flat sort of stock imagery looking things sort of corporate aesthetic 
uh, things that work really well in white space and don't really work well in a black space. And I think it was sort of like work that that worked really well on contemporary art daily. That was sort of, I think, the key more than any kind of conceptual thing as far as whatever so that aesthetic. So peak was like 2011. I think, yeah, you could say exactly. 2011 is like as far as it's being important. Before the Mayan apocalypse. Or was still important. Exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, I think that, yeah, aesthetics changed a lot around 2012, for sure. Um, along And political aesthetics as well. That's my big platform fear, though, is that ultimately, like, every action is going to be monetized via some platform, even, like, friendship or something. That already like, is. <laughs> or I guess you're right, but I'm... You just don't get the, the benefit of yourself. Yeah, or it's just, like, everything ends up having a currency assigned to it, and you end up, like, renting... Like, you end up, like, renting out your friendship. Like, you rent people at your party. You rent how much they say. Silicon so Valley, they literally do rent people for their parties. Like they run hot girls for their parties. I think that's also a like a, like an Asian startup thing that they hire hot girls just to like work in the office and be like nice to the incels and. That started at American. The massaging Apparel. girls in startups. That's what I'm talking about. Right. The massaging girls. Yeah. It's a apparently like a big position. Yeah. Now. So. Back to platforms, though. I mean, if they become totally ubiquitous in life, I think the idea of uh, everybody being an entrepreneur is a nightmare. Like, and I don't think everybody is just built to be an entrepreneur anyways, um, but it, it's really scary to me. And then, of course, there'd be platform guys at the center of all of this entrepreneurship. The best answer to me uh, to kind of prevent a monopoly of the platform is for ownership of all these platforms that everyone uses to actually be owned collectively by all the users of the platform, which to me seems like a, you know, blockchain-based platform platforms could actually provide that solution right and but there's still going to be developers and you know people who there's going to be there's always some sort of centralized control and all of these things like that's i think a very big misunderstanding with like blockchain companies it's like they're companies and there's people that work there and a lot of them have equity and they're not like even innovative corporate structures they just hap happen to have this token product on top of it which is like unrelated to their actual business but doesn't it still seem a lot better it's like if you as soon as you sign up for a facebook profile you got to share the company or something as opposed to having as opposed to just merely being like taxed or having this company constantly profiting off of your every action without you getting anything i mean i think being taxed would be like a better situation i mean that would be what it would be if it was actually collectivized and i think that's an alternative like thinking about collectivizing Facebook or nationalizing it as opposed to like a blockchain alternative, I kind of think in general, the centralized database is not a problem. And I think like the logic behind most of these blockchain things is like some weird paranoid worldview about trust. And that, you know, like that's how civilization works is trust. Like, I don't think we need to make trustless systems for everything. Like I just, especially when they're so inefficient as far as their actual structure, like imagine how slow Facebook would be if it was actually on the blockchain, especially if it was just literally every post has to be updated and everyone has to have a ledger of every block of every Facebook post. I mean, if it was literally a blockchain thing, it would not, it would not work at all. So I don't know. But I do think that similar to everyone, this like dystopia of everyone being an entrepreneur is just like there being a token for every fucking product. Like if your token works like a Chuck E. Cheese token, you don't need it. It's just about locking people into your ecosystem. There's no reason for that. I, that is like, yeah, I don't know. I feel like that's going to crest. I think like that's definitely just like of the moment, the token scam. But I mean, one thing I noticed when I was at like, was it Blockstack Berlin, the conference and like so many of these platforms were like we all use so and so but what if the next cyber hitler came be took <laughs> over the world and you know all of and took control of these platforms it's like that's not that's like literally the excuse they have for their entire company but that makes so much sense because nothing coheres a community like existential threat. So if you want to have an immediate audience that's ready to like give up money and like be part of the community, you're like, I'm the only one who can save you from hell. Right. But like, is really, what if cyber Hitler, like that's the reason for like all of these companies? Like, 
I mean, another interesting thing is that Silicon Valley allows very little space for negative, for dystopia, right? And so one imagines it has to desublimate itself somehow. So it makes sense that it has to articulate the negative fantasy in order to present what it's solving. But I think algorithmic selection or options for which algorithm you want to run on is like, I think that would be a really great feature for the future. But I think the thing is that like, maybe algorithms can't be boiled down into these flavors and that they're constantly being reflecting and optimizing based off of or trying to anyways that it would be hard i just wish there was a button that was like valuable or not valuable Mm -hmm. to classify your information not just like 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 i saw this but just value like to ascribe some sort of but then you get into the like tyranny of the five-star rating system like uber where literally it just becomes a 4.3 to 4.8 star system because Mm -hmm. like you can't get higher than that and if you get lower than that you get fired so Mm -hmm. it's like i don't know i just feel like any type of it's hard if you're asking anyone to rate something beyond just like affirmation it's really hard like how do you define what a four-star cab ride is like you either got there or you got kidnapped like there's not that much (laughs) in between that would be like a three-star ride. So like, I don't know. I just feel like maybe we're not very good at assigning value to things that we uh, pay attention to. Like, and I think that's the whole idea about these algorithms is that they're supposed to understand our motivations more than we do ourselves consciously. So they could maybe like pay some lip service and make us give us an illusion of control. I think that would probably be a good marketing standpoint, but Google never, do that google's business they're an advertising company they're not anything else i mean alphabet maybe is more than just an advertising company but google that's in its dna i just don't see it changing i could imagine maybe facebook doing it more than but also not because they're a data harvesting company but again i think you would need like another parameter that's like degree of bullshit you want despite your one to five value rating because as we were saying before like you have like um a model that gives you only primary key content like is exhausting right so you'd have to have a certain amount of like you want a certain amount of clickbait or you want a certain amount of like like lighter stuff i think it'd be hard to like admit that to yourselves that you want that 25 percent of clickbait that you actually definitely want you would never like self-select for that you'd be like I also feel like whenever they, whenever you like, I don't know, get a new TV or something like that, and they always like give you these like channels that you can subscribe to, and there's always like the TED Talk channel and the Harvard Review of Books channel, and you're like, oh, maybe I'll watch all this content, and you always like select very ambitious yeah. channels, and you end up like just watching like yeah. shows you've already seen on Netflix. I don't know. I think I'm like the only. I I'm just not like the others. I guess. <laughs> I really would. I, like, dream of an internet where, like, I learn something good every day and I don't get a headache and I don't feel ashamed. Yeah, but even you, like, we've talked about this site. Even you were like, you don't want to be reading long reads and every single click. I mean, ultimately, though, with platforms, I mean, the final nightmare, though, right, is that, like, every single aspect of our lives will be monetized and every single thing that we have and use will be rented. Yes, and there'll be, and then it'll be like Elysium. I mean, it is true that if you get to like a rental model, it is just one step away from a collectivized model. If you just nationalize that company that owns all those mm. cars, so mm. I do think, in a way, this is maybe leading, even if it's like leading towards like a pre-modern type of capitalism. It's like it is also a post-capitalism potentially. Well, depending on how who controls the stacks in the future i guess i like like platform crime platform crime what is that an example like? Yeah. yeah like alpha bay what oh sure oh. Pla- platforms that facilitate crime oh yes. right like platform drugs <clears throat> is good well Plat- you know about like gnosis like the well, it's like a decentralized prediction market but like I think that the founders think of it as being a decentralized assassination market. Because, of course, you just set up a bet for will so-and-so die on this date. Right. It becomes, uh, well, it's just like <laughs> using, you know, economic incentives to, you know, create certain types of behavior. That's the whole name of the game. And that's just creating this a platform for That's for insane. That. 
all you do is set up a wager. Will so and so die on this date? And but then there's, there's, an offer. there's an incentive to do that, and without it actually being yeah. like an actual assassination market, which someone has, they did try to do in the early Dark Knight days. I don't think it was really real, but of course there also was real assassinations. I guess. Yeah, I think. I mean, but the thing is, that could only happen once on Gnosis. And then they'd be like, that's illegal. You cannot have... Two people and here. But the thing is, I mean, this is, again, to be tested. But the idea is that it is just a protocol. It's decentralized. It can't be just shut down. If someone makes that bet, it's like, there. So uh, it's like an inherently uncontrollable thing once it's unleashed. And I think, uh, well, I think they know it. I think they're doing it deliberately. What? It could be illegal to bet on it. You know, I mean, I just like tell it to the judge. Ultimately, it's, you can't. I don't think that would last. Like assassinations working like that. It is interesting, though. But yeah, it's definitely a thought experiment level thing happening. I mean, it's going to end up being sports betting. <laughs> it's almost definitely just going to be sports betting. But in theory, it could be all these other things. Will Russia? Rig the election. <laughs> well, you know, but okay, but prediction markets. There's, you know, this whole idea of futarchy, which is just making decisions based off of futures markets. And after nine eleven, the I forget if it was the Defense Department or if it was the Pentagon. So the the Pentagon set up basically a prediction market for predicting terrorist attacks. And because that was like such an extreme moral hazard, uh, they like shut it down within like three days of announcing it. But I think it was like in 2003 or something like that. So there are people have been experimenting with this for a while, I think. But having it as a decentralized protocol that it's not really, there isn't technically a platform owner and that sort of like, then there's no ownership. And it is really much more like this decentralized autonomous organization structure. I mean, I think one, one thing that was interesting in this, in the text also was saying that the DAO demonstrated by failure was the term that you can't have a decentralized thing. But I just think, you can't demonstrate anything by failure because you can just you can only demonstrate something by success. Otherwise, it just hasn't happened yet. I don't know. I mean, that's obviously the argument about Soviet cap or Soviet communism. But is there life on Mars? <laughs> yeah, it's not a falsifiable thing. I don't think that the fact that the Dow hack, like it, definitely showed issues with with trying to automate things like that. But it doesn't mean that it's like somehow been proven impossible. And there's all sorts of other, you know, maybe less autonomous, but other kinds of organizations that are modeling things off of it. I don't think it's a useless model, that's for sure. The one thing, though, that really bothers me about these platforms and these kind of group, like, group ratings and, and things is that, I mean, that... I'm sorry, but, like, the, the combined hive mind of the planet is, like, not that smart. Like, and it you really does... I mean, I also think about... I think about you know uh, the art market too and like alec monopoly right and like i was getting really scared though about like uh i was thinking like yo like to be honest if you with like swizz beats and his bacardi sponsored no commission thing and alec monopoly paintings being sold for a hundred thousand dollars but because of the attention value of like somebody posting on their instagram like yo just got this alec just dropped 10 stacks on an alec monopoly and like that's the new dinner party conversation about your piece of art it's like the art market might i mean this i i really do think these kinds of mass like mass models could take over like everything and kind of just drive culture down like or or just or just like kind of just drown out any any really interesting signal with the noise of the uh of the groundlings right i mean the contemporary art market in the u.s and in western europe has definitely suffered uh, or is definitely in a place of marginalization uh, in contrast to the mid-2000s when it was arm-in-arm with globalization and some utopian ideas about what that could look like. Um, And the Alec Monopoly phenomenon is really interesting to explore because that does largely define how the contemporary art market seems to be working now. Um, well, it's a combination of that, and then like the country, well, where the wealth is coming from just happens to be like autocracies from the east. Right. So it's like, yeah, a pretty different type of of vision that's being sold to the collectors, anyways. I think, and I think, yeah, like the Western market has. I think it, you could say it's collapsed. Like, I don't think that's dramatic. Like, it's just primary. in my yeah, the primary market. I mean, 
in this fairly short period that I've been in whatever a witness to the art world it has changed just so much I mean uh, 2006 versus 2013 I think was the height I would say of the sort of emerging contemporary boom 2015 it was like already over and you know since then I don't know so many galleries are just closing down all of the sort of interesting small medium galleries like real fine arts just closed down uh well, other ones, so many other ones. In the yeah, last year. a bunch of, of longstanding ones. I, I place it too. There was um, in 2008, I think it was like April and May or May and summer of Art Forum. Tim Griffin published two issues. One was the Damien Hurst skull, which was like the, the market issue, I think it was called. And then the next was um, a detail from a Corbet painting. I, I forget the name. Maybe it's just called Wave. And it's like a massive wave that's cresting. And I still in my mind, maybe just because of those two images, I tie that to the moment when the 2000s fervor peaked. Right. And since then, yeah, there have been up and downs, but then we went into the, you know, the economic collapse of 2007, 8. Um, and then... Well, I mean, the, 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 the Damien Hurst auction was the day that Lehman Brothers went yes. under. I mean, it was definitely the high water mark, I think, of the, of that version of the art market. But I think there is definitely... Well, I guess as far as actually scale is tiny, but the emerging contemporary bro abstract painter boom, which, yeah, as far as m total sum, way less, but... Zombie formalism. Zombie formalism, yeah. That that was very much like a 20... That was very much a product of the recession and the sort of just, let's just mass manufacture cheap paintings because that's the, like, just economic necessity of the moment. And I think, like... Yeah, the Damien Hirst diamond skull, or just like in general, the sort of ambition of production and the knots versus to sort of keeping it real capitalist realism of just shitty painting. And I think that's, that's a big decade shift. And it is totally because of economic conditions. It's 2013-14, zombie formalism. I think that's height. more since 2011, but the 2011. height 2013-14 yeah. yeah. for sure. Um, just so people know. I mean, if you haven't heard of Alec Monopoly, he's like this kid in L.A. who basically does the most basic fucking simp, tired, absolutely nothing new about it, street art of the Monopoly man with like puns about... What was the pun you said on that one you saw? Oh, it was like, uh, it was like a, a snowboard like with dollar bills coming out the back, riding down a mountain. Like, and, and then no, it had a line though. That was oh, like yeah, a play like, on words. Yeah, I was like bored, bored, something about being uh, bored. Oh, yeah, don't be bored, bored yeah. or something. Yeah. It was like, yeah. <laughs> it was but anyways, like, like is he New York or LA? No, L oh, what do you think? It, it, basically, though, <laughs> the the saddest Vegas. thing too. The saddest thing, he might be from Vegas. The saddest thing too. So basically, he looks like Dash Snow, but like but, no, he's a graffiti artist originally from New York City. Oh, that's bad. But he's worked in urban environments of New York, Miami, Los Angeles. Okay. Europe. Europe. <laughs> the urban environment and, of Europe. And, and Asia. <laughs> okay. I love that city. Basically, he's cultivated a dash snow look, like with the cowboy hat and like the eyebrows and the long hair. He's some guy who does this stupid fucking street art that's not even like special and they sell for like, you know, five high five figures. And basically, he just gamed the. Uh, social media and celebrities to buy his shit because uh i mean and, and he just got huge off of it and what worries me though is like the it seems to me like the art world especially on the critical side and actually the, the side of the art world and art criticism with legacy has really not adapted to the platform age at all and there's a part of me that's like, yeah, it shouldn't even engage in that. But then there's a part of me that wonders if it doesn't engage, if it'll just get swallowed by the noise of the fucking Alex Monopolies. There's always been charlatans, though, in the art world. Like, you can't really have the art world without charlatans. But he's not in the art world. The thing is, he's generating, like, he's generating a huge amount of, like, lots of money in his own bubble that's like totally disconnected similarly there's always been these like weird alternate non-art like like las vegas casino gallery like there's this one photographer like robert lick who just like has a chain of galleries that are his own work and like there are these yeah no it's hilarious and there's these photos and there are these like super hdr photos that he takes and they're like countless editions you know but they're like priced like real art 
And I remember I, I went into one of those things. I, I asked the lady, like, what's the edition number? And she's like, oh, you really know your stuff. Like, <laughs> I mean, and, and these are like, these are also five figure work, you know? Like, so there, it's like, I think uh. the type of people who are, you know, spending money on like Fendi in one of these malls in a Vegas casino, like, that's the target market. But okay. I also think, I remember that one documentary of like Michael Jackson going shopping. I think also in Vegas, because I think that's just where you do this kind of stuff. And he's just buying the most bootleg fake artifacts and like antiques and artwork and stuff. It's just, there's always going to be that. So he's big. So basically, what you're saying is Alec Monopoly is just Thomas Kincaid. Thomas Kincaid is, I think, well, that's a pretty good business model. Thomas Kincaid yeah. never sold any original paintings, just that's prints. That's an amazing but, but, business model. But, but like, right, there is some parallel, though, like between them because Alec Monopoly is kind of just like he just like made a brand and made some art and put a big price tag on it and it got really popular but nobody in the real art world cares about him but well the fact that the product is art is almost arbitrary it's just a marketing yeah yeah that's true that's Thomas Kincaid point. I think he it can't really deny the talent of Thomas Kincaid. Like, oh, Master some, of Light. I mean, oh, they're like he has a, his own style. At least it's not derivative. It looks like Thomas Kincaid. Like, you know, well, no, it's highly derivative. It's not derivative like, at all. Like, like John Constable. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. It's like, it's like it was like the algorithm before the algorithm. That's right. what's kind of amazing about Thomas Kincaid is he internalized the algorithm of like the Christian American idea of a beautiful painting. I mean, a cozy cottage in the woods in the middle of winter with like the first rays of dawn glimmering across its roof that's like an archetype that just strikes the heart it's not a hard (laughs) it's not a hard sell but i think what you have to give him credit for is making all of his work that's like pretty much almost hallucinogenic like it all looks like you're on mushrooms and then popularizing that to middle america you know i think bob ross had just died or his like career was fading i i Somehow, by chance, like late night TV, I think I was in the Netherlands and they were showing the last episode of the <gasps> Bob Ross show. And he was painting a winter, dead winter landscape and just seemed drunk, really <laughs> sad. It was, it was really tragic, but probably worth, worth a revisit. Why aren't there like ba- Bob Ross versus Thomas Kincaid battles? I mean, Bob Ross is obviously like better, it's better as a practice, that's for sure. It's much more inclusive. Thomas Kincaid, I think, just was a like, just died of being an alcoholic. Yeah. When he's like, 50. oh, he did. He Thomas did. Kincaid. Yeah, he, did. yeah. he was. He had like. He was a bad alcoholic. He was a domestic abuser. He's. He would have gotten me too. He's lucky. Yeah. <laughs> R- he, richer than richer than Damien Hirst or Coons, though. Like really? richest richest artist. Thomas I'm pretty Kincaid. Sure. Yeah, I'm pre- that's what I. That's that's my understanding. Wow. It's a lot of Hennessy. <laughs> but I mean. But I don't know. I don't, I'm not an art guy, and and I've been talking about this, like you know, like Carly, like you you guys need to be careful, like Alex Monopoly is he's a menace to you guys. I'm telling you, and and you didn't believe me, but then you started hearing how bad the market was, and now you're kind of believing me. I think well, something's bad, bad not in terms of like it's like market cap, bad in terms of like what it's focusing on, and that it seems to be like. You know, even blue chip galleries will have like Ellsworth Kelly, and then we'll have like, <laughs> like I don't want to. I feel bad saying names, does, but like, does the Chinese like does the Chinese market, Asian market, care about Canon and like stuff like this? Like, how does that still does that still figure into sales and value of pieces now, or is that something that's like being lost? That's interesting. They definitely believe in icon value, so like a Warhol, a Picasso, things that are iconically recognizable definitely still have value because they they work like almost like emojis of what painting should be they have a kind of of global power um that is an it's an interesting question i mean of course this is a it's a very big question to unpack the history of post-war art in america and in the west is of course very different than the history of art in a maoist country if they're buying a richard Serra, i mean or Joseph Boys, or you know, name your name your important post-war art artist. I mean, that's pushing that that's a certain political position pushing against a certain political situation that was not one that was shared. So they're buying a piece of like exotic history, mm-hmm. exotic to China. So it's it's interesting how that market relation would play out in terms of a canon. One thing that's interesting is that in the nineties, in two thousand early two thousands, I know that. Chinese universities were keen on 
bringing over um, academics from the U.S. to speak on post-structuralism, to speak on Frankfurt School, to speak on some of the guiding theoretical points that um, we've built our October style theory on. And those academics saying like, sure, we can tell you what we know about post-structuralism or we can tell you what we, we can give you our canon, but does that make any sense for you? When you have Maoists in Paris carrying around their little red books saying they watch French auteur films, that's a very different kind of Maoism than what you would experience if you were living in Beijing in the 60s, 70s. I think ultimately for right now, instead of focusing on like getting away from the platform to me it's just more about offering an alternative algorithm to the feed which is a human directed one which is what new models is supposed to be so instead of just relying on the feed for seeing things you can kind of have a trusted source of information when you're looking for something to read which is so simple and used to exist in blogs kind of but like just doesn't anymore. And so... Well, I think there's also, we said this before, but the way that the feed individuates you and the way that when you have a feed, it's news that's tailored to you. So you have a sense that everyone else is reading what you're reading, but of course, what you're reading and what your neighbor is reading are different. And of course, in everyday life, your neighbor could pick up the New York Post, you could pick up the Wall Street Journal or vice versa, and you could have different realities. But um, there's the illusion that when you're on Google, these are the results. There's the illusion that when you're on Facebook, this is the news. And having a stable place that has heterogeneous material from lots of different sources, but it's the same for everyone. What I think is more insidious is like, did you see this meme of all of the different news anchors from various different networks oh, yes. all repeating the same line? So this illusion that there's difference when it's actually just the same homogenous yes. source, that I think is yes. worse, actually. Yes. Yeah. It happens in art culture magazines as well, where you have redundancy across these platforms all reporting on the same story. I mean, I think there, yeah, I also, I mean, maybe this is too much to get into, but I do think also that there should be a pushback uh, against discussing or debating things online via social media being an adequate way to discuss or debate something. I mean, it's almost like people today think that it's like, that it's just the same as talking to somebody or having a debate in a public place or something or having a real conversation. And it's not. Like, if we want to think like computers, then let's think like computers about it. When you debate with somebody in public, you have, like, hundreds if not thousands of other data points coming in via facial expressions, gestures, subtlety of tone, uh, pheromones, who knows how much else. And it's just, like, it's just not an, it's just not an effective... It's not a one-to-one uh, cop. It's not a one-to-one copy of of what debating someone actually in public or in a public sphere or personally or in reality is like. And it really that the continuum between the virtual and the real is like something that I think is really, really like existentially dangerous. As as Tino Segal said when asked. Has he ever considered using Jordan Wolfson-like animatronic dolls in his performances that require real people? He said, yeah, no, I'm not interested. Humans are the most complex machine that I could possibly work with. Yeah, it's, well, yes. I mean, we, yeah, nature is really, really high tech. And, 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 um, and, but I also, I, I mean, I hope that maybe there'll be a, a new uh, social phenomenon where they actually like, set up, like, IRL debates between people or something. Like, people tend to love arguing online. Like, why not make it, like, a real-life social thing? Right arguing here. online is more fun because you don't have all those other cues and it's controlled and it's gamified because of that. Because it's, like, a very tight format and you don't have to feel empathy for the your opponent in the same way you do if they're in person As obviously it, it's corrosive i'm not trying to argue that it's not but i can totally see why people prefer the you know anonymity and the you know being behind a screen allows you to be so much more ruthless about things which is i mean i think a root of a lot of the problems in our politics these days but that that uh alienation is just like 
pretty appealing. Whenever it comes up in discussion, though, I always tell people, I'm like, yeah, sorry, like, debating politics, like, having discussions online, like, this is just, like, a sociopolitical, like, massive multiplayer online role-playing game. This isn't real. This is just an M- MMORPG. Backed up by the fact that people can literally vote for who's winning with emojis of different, of your four to five different types. Right. I just think we should really just not, like, there needs to be this kind of, like, uh, public kind of, uh, I don't know, some sort of pop wisdom spread that's like, oh, you know, like, arguing online, like, it's not actually real. Like, you know, Facebook's actually a role-playing game, and it's not, like, really, like, your virtual life. I mean, it's just thinking about it and like forcing it into that context, I think, could be very helpful and valuable to the world. I just think it's so much the opposite of what is happening. And people are just just gamifying their lives and role playing more and more in their in their lives. I don't think anyone's going to be like, it's just a game. They're going to be like, yeah, it's a game. Like, exactly. I mean, games yeah. are t- I don't think it, I don't think it's completely by chance why they're increasingly popular and i do think that they are a form of you know social control to keep people whatever satisfied but they're good at it i don't know like I mean, one interesting point that was made elsewhere was the correlation between tribalism and the online space and as we have a dissolution of a tribal system in our real lives loss of church or companies or communities that in the online space through these mmorpg type structures we can then reassert um, a tribal structure with this endorsement, uh, <laughs> type mentality. And it's satisfying to feel like you have a community that backs you up, that will like go to war for you online. I really want to like bring back the days of when like, like bullies were like, Oh, what are you doing this weekend? Sitting at home on your computer and like throws a kid in the trash. Yeah, I mean the, the nerds. The nerds won, and then the nerds became weird, even like, worse, neo-monarchist fascists. Yeah. <laughs> I also want the site to be a place though that doesn't get into its like own filter bubble. Basically, like I don't. I'm not very into like following the like party line of the left right now, which is also kind of. On its own, there's not like there's, there's nothing like the hive mind is setting the rules, and oftentimes people don't know what the rules quite are because it's so amorphous and shifting. And then, of course, you err on the side of like uh, sort of more restricted or more sensitive because that's safer than maybe breaking a rule that you don't know what it is. I think we kind of you know I think we probably will have some flexibility to break rules and get in trouble a little bit too. I mean, I think that's what a good community does. It actually ends up being the proverbial safe space because since you trust the other people in your community, you trust them to, like, if you take risks, they've got your back because they know that you're speaking in a way that's trying to, like, build your community. It's um, It gives you freedom to not necessarily toe the party line, to challenge it and to be, like, challenged back so i hope we do have a space where people feel free to say stuff and to challenge other people but um not to feel like they're hyper censored in doing so it's like feed crafting as a new hobby yeah feed crafting exactly like everybody can make their own feed sure do it that's so cool great human directed feeds for everybody yeah, I like feed crafting on the weekend. Yeah. <laughs> That's better than curation markets, I think. Feed craft. Yeah, feed craft is. Yeah. I mean, feed craft Flow is. craft. I, I do think there is something. I don't think everyone should make their own platform. I do think, and we are, we're living this problem, but I do think that there's, I think the, the new idea for the summer is that everyone is going to have their own podcast and we're only going to communicate by just <laughs> speaking into the microphone, into the void. <laughs> And then, like, waiting for the feedback over the week and then, like, replying. Which I guess is a nice slow-down version of a Twitter flame war, I guess. If it's, like, a week. It's, like, kind of message-in-the-bottle style. I but mean, way more narcissistic. But we don't live in Brooklyn, so at least we're avoiding one We're aspect. actually at the end of the L train. I'm pretty sure that, like... <laughs> That's yeah, true. Utah's, People don't know that. Yeah, yeah, they don't know that. There's a secret portal. If you you the last to, train. You have to ride the L train. That's yeah, Oscar. It's Oscar. Okay, we're the second. No, class. but you have to stay on the L train, p- 
past the last stop. It goes back and forth three times, and on the third time, it goes past the last stop. That's right. And it's about tw- 27 hours to Berlin. <laughs> and then it's it- actually, you know, there's one, there's a bridge that goes across over to Rockaway, and there's another that goes under the water. Right. It just keeps going. Oh, no, you have to, that's, yeah, no, yeah, you have to cool. look for the... No, it's just right. It's a special. You got to look for the one with the conductor that has a uh, septum piercing and a high and tight. <laughs> <laughs> this was our first podcast, so it's probably a bit messy, but we wanted to say why we're here. But we'd love to hear from you uh, and what you'd like to hear on this platform. So send comments to desk at newmodels.io and um, let us know what you think. And visit us at newmodels.io. And also log off, take a walk, make a friend, go outside. Thanks for listening to the first episode of the New Models Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions, please reach out to desk at newmodels.io. If you'd like to advertise, underwrite, or sponsor an episode, please write to anad, anod, at newmodels.io. This has been Lil Internet, Caroline Busta, Dan Keller, and Masha Chan. See you next time.